Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. How to describe Jennifer Trainer? Let me count the ways. An award-winning journalist, Jennifer's written 19 books that have been translated into 10 languages. They include Fresh Fish, the Fresh Egg Cookbook, and Hot Sauce. She's the chef curator of Jump and Kiss Me, an all-natural line of spicy foods. Her articles have been published in the New York Times, Boston Globe, Travel and Leisure, just to name three. Jennifer also happens to be one of the co-founders of Mass Mocha, Mass as in Massachusetts, which in 2017 became the largest museum for contemporary art in the world. But just some 30 years before, its vast brick buildings were the home of a massive factory that was brought down by the recessions of the 70s and 80s. The eventual transformation gave the blue-collar town of North Adams a new lease on life. Jennifer was there from the beginning. Her involvement with Mass Mocha began in 1988 and when it opened in 1999. That journey is the subject of the documentary Museum Town, which, by the way, marks her directing debut. She's also one of the producers. What's Jennifer been doing post-MOCA? She's currently the director of the Hancock Shaker Village Museum in Hancock, Massachusetts. That's enough of an intro for now. There's lots of ground to cover, so let's meet and get to know this hell of a powerhouse. Jennifer, welcome and thanks so much for joining me remotely from Pittsfield, Mass. today. Thank you very much. I always like to go back in time. Where did the writing come from? Was that something that you always aspired to? And when you were growing up, did you write stories? Or were you a reporter for a kid newspaper? (laughs) Um, Yes, I I actually uh, wrote and published the neighborhood newspaper. And the headline, I was in fourth grade, was... Mrs. Kennedy has diarrhea and (laughs) Mrs. Kennedy bought all the copies. (laughs) Not for nothing. Did you know how to spell the word diarrhea? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I was one of those spelling nerds. Um, But when I was in my early 20s, I I graduated from college and I, I helped deliver some sailboats from Maine to the Virgin Islands. And then I moved to New York City to the East Village. And I, I really wanted to be an actress and I really wanted to be a writer. And I loved both of them equally, but I decided that, you know, when I was in my seventies and eighties, I could still be a writer, but I had not heard of Meryl Streep yet. Uh, <laughs> right. I, I, I didn't think that I could be an actress past, you know, the shelf life of 45. So it was impractical for practical reasons that I picked writing. What do you mean you transferred sailboats to the Virgin Islands? Don't throw that oh. away. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I graduated from Tufts University, which was a very, it was a competitive school. And everybody was going on to get their business degree, their medical degree, their dental degree. And I, I just didn't want to have any more part of going to school. So I moved to Mount Desert Island, Maine, and I was a waitress in a, in a um, coffee shop. And this guy came in and he owned four Hinkley sailboats, which, you know, for a sailor, which I was, is like owning four uh, choice Maseratis. Mm. And he was looking for a crew. It was October. He was looking for a crew to deliver them from Northern Maine to 
British Virgin to Virgin Gorda. Um, and so uh, four of us signed on and it was, it was quite the adventure. We'd sail it down and then fly back and then sail another one down and then fly back. It was really fun. Boy, it sounds really cool. Yeah. Uh, where did you get off with, in terms of your chutzpah and doing whatever you wanted to do? Where'd that come from? <laughs> uh, I think from my mother. She was a very pragmatic woman. She was very smart. She was, she believed in women being equal hmm. uh, and she was very kind and generous. And when I was in first grade, we lived in, um, we lived in Maine and my dad had a, a paper mill and it burnt to the ground and he had to find a job quickly. And we moved to Indiana and my, my parents were Yankees and they joked that we had moved to India, no place. Yeah, really? and, all my cousins summered uh, on Buzzards Bay, which is near Cape Cod. And so right. my mother, when I was in second grade, she put me on a plane. It was TWA. In those days, you know, you actually walked out to the tarmac. And I flew from Indianapolis to Boston, second grade. Wow. And as I was about to get on the plane, I, um, I was scared. And she just looked at me and she said, and, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. And I knew that this plane ticket was expensive. And she just looked me right in the eyes and she said, Jenny, if you don't want to do it, you don't have to. And she gave me that power. She really did. And that was the way she always was. So you could be in control of you in a way. Yeah. 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 That is very powerful. So let's start with the writing then. Where did the culinary writing come from? That came from the sailing. The captain of the boat was a very smart man. He had a first mate and he had a second mate. I was the second mate. And he had a cook. Because, you know, many of these delivery captains, you know, you survived on cold dinty moor stew that you opened. Yeah, I was just from the can. Yeah. It was disgusting. Mm-hmm. And, and he, he found this woman, Elizabeth Wheeler, who was a really great chef. She'd been a private chef for... Um, executives on Wall Street. She had sailed with William F. Buckley on his transatlantic and his transpacific. Um, and she just made these masterful meals with nothing, you know, very few ingredients, a terrible galley kitchen. And when I moved to the East Village and I had that kind of a kitchen and I had no money, I just kept thinking about how she had created all these things. And I had I had already written two books, which had nothing to do with food. And so I tracked her down and I said, we have to do this cookbook together. And it was called The Yachting Cookbook. And it was basically how to make great food with few ingredients under the worst possible conditions. <laughs> and it ended up getting nominated for a James Beard Award. And it was, it was a really fun book to, to write, but it was a complete departure from what I had been writing. And it was just, it was just fun. Did that speak to you? In a, in a different way? It did because it, it led me, you know, of, of the 19 or so books that I've written, 10 of them have been cookbooks. So it mm-hmm. really led me on this, on this food path. When your first book was published, how old were you? I was 26. Okay. That's young. Did well, you acknowledge that? It's actually a funny story. I was, my first job in New York, I was an editor's assistant at Simon & Schuster. And it was right after the accident at Three Mile Island. And we kept getting all these anti-nuclear book proposals. And one of my jobs was to read the unsolicited 
manuscripts, what we called the slush pile. <laughs> and um, there were no pro-nuclear. And I myself wanted to know the facts. I, I knew that I was inclined to be anti-nuclear, but I didn't really know the arguments of both sides. So we got one anti-nuclear proposal from a nuclear physicist. And I was really a lousy assistant. I really was. And I was young. And my boss fired me after nine months and she said, you should be writing. You don't belong in publishing. You, you should write. And I had written this memo to the editor-in-chief saying we needed a book which gave both sides. And I said, I'm only 23. And she said, oh, just, you know, write about this. And, you know, the, the, a book about nuclear power both sides. And I said, well, I, I had not gone past 11th grade in science. And she's like, oh, just find an expert. So this poor, this poor guy, his name was Michio Kaku. He was a professor of theoretical physics at City University. And he's currently a talking head and has been for many years. Yeah, yeah. He was totally unknown then. And he had submitted this anti-nuclear book proposal. So I took him out to lunch. And he thought he was having lunch with an editor from Simon & Schuster. And he was having lunch with a flunky who had just gotten fired. <laughs> and he, God bless him. So I, I said, we're rejecting your idea, but I have an idea. Do you want to do it? And he said, yes. And we ended up writing two books together. Wow. I mean, I'm getting the impression, Jennifer, that you could sell ice in winter. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> so you're publishing books, you're starting a food line, and you're staying in New York for the most part while this is happening? Yes. Yes. Oh. I was living in New York City. Okay. Having having a lot of fun. You know, that was the late 70s, early 80s. The East Village was, you know, the Mud Club and Talking Heads and it was sure. and Blondie. It was great. At that time in the 70s, well, early 70s, I had just graduated from NYU and going into the East Village, which we did frequently took your, not your life in your hands, but it was, it was dicey. It was dicey. Yeah. 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 I was a waitress at the Kiev, which was a Ukrainian diner. Yes, 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 yeah. yes, yes. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. They did have a, a pretty big Ukrainian population, also Polish. That's right. That's yeah, right. If I remember correctly, and I don't usually remember correctly. <laughs> so let's move to Massachusetts, literally and figuratively, and Tell us the genesis of your connection to a museum for contemporary art. How did this all happen? I got married in New York and to a man who worked on Wall Street. And he about in 1986, he got a call from his best friend from childhood who was living in North Adams in the Berkshires and wanted to grow organic shiitake mushrooms. And by then, by then, you know, I was interested in food. Mm -hmm. And um, and it was before flying foods. It was before the whole food revolution. It was before you could get mahi-mahi in January. And the only mushrooms that were available were white button mushrooms that were fresh. So he had invented this Rube Goldberg-like device, which created the oak logs in Japan that shiitakes grew on and he found a way to impregnate them with shiitake spores and grow fresh mushrooms. So, you know, by then I'd been wanting to leave the city, but I was like, was it Zsa Gabor and Green Acres? You know, my idea of the of the country was like Chappaqua. <laughs> and, <laughs> okay. and 
he he just he wanted to do this with his best friend. So it was a total flyer for both of us. And I'm like, well, I'm a writer. Okay, I can live anywhere. Right. I'd I'd never been to the Berkshires. I'd never heard of North Adams. I barely had heard of Williamstown. Um, I grew up in Boston or it and the eastern part of the Massachusetts where you know the state ended at Route 495. Mm-hmm. So um we did that. And after a year, uh, like many startups, the the mushroom factory was not doing well financially. And as a writer, you know, I could never support myself. So one of us had to get a job. And I felt it was only fair that, you know, he had the streams and we'd made this deal that we would follow his career path for five years and then we'd follow my career path for five mm-hmm. years. And we, were, we were one year into it. So I said, okay, I'll get a job. So I had... I had met Tom Krenz at a cocktail party at Williams College, and he told me about this wacky idea to turn this huge abandoned factory complex. And, and Sprague Electric was the owner of this factory, and they had just pulled out of town. And when, when I moved to the Berkshires, Sprague Electric had just left. And it was 4,000 people lost their jobs in a city of 12,000 people. Yeah, so crazy. it mm. felt like a bomb had gone off nice. in this town next door. It had not been written about. So I I wrote a story about it for the New York Times. I broke the story about Mass Mocha. And then um, it, the, the idea was being incubated at Williams College because Tom was director of the College Museum. And so um, when, the, when the governor, Governor Dukakis, uh, said that he would invest, you know, that, that, that they wanted to test the feasibility of the idea... I wrote and applied for a job as the head of PR because I thought I can write, I can do PR. And that was the beginning of, you know, 28 years because I, it just, as I say in the film, it it was such a big and bold and preposterous idea Mm -hmm. that it just sucks you in. You're doing PR for this project. So you were getting paid by, quote, government money? Yeah, it was a it was a feasibility study that the state the state uh, granted a modest amount to the city of North Adams, and they formed a commission and to conduct a year long feasibility study to test whether this idea made sense. So I thought I was being hired to be the head of PR of this feasibility study. We were called the executive planning group, mm-hmm. but I actually was in charge of development and public relations. I had no idea what development was. I was not wealthy. I had not gone to a school where, you know, the, the, the alumni and development office sought me out. So, but I quickly, I quickly learned what development meant. You know, I'm struck by this. Nothing was going to freaking stop you. <laughs> well, I must say that uh, when I made this film, I really questioned that because um, one, when you're older, you know, I was in my 50s, and two, as a woman, and three, as a first-time filmmaker. You know, I was pretty ambitious. I, I didn't want to just make this little documentary that wasn't going to be seen. I really wanted to make a good one. Uh, you know, the first question people would ask was, what other films have you made? Sure. And, and I would, you know, it was really hard to say it was my first one. And I would, I would leave, and I would clench my fists, and I would say, Steven Spielberg had a first. Every single person right, has right. a first of everything. But it, it did test my mettle on that one. But you were your biggest supporter, weren't you? You were not getting help necessarily from either other people or other avenues. Well, I, I would say that 
Rachel Chanoff, who's my executive producer and a good friend, she really helped. And in 2010, I had the idea and it wasn't right at that time for many, many reasons. And when I returned to the idea in, and in 2010, when I had this idea, she said, if you make this film, I will produce it. And six years later, when I went to her and she said, yes, you know, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll do, we're going to do this. So I felt like I had a, I felt like I had a teammate who believed in the idea and believed in the fact that even though we'd never made a film, that we could do it together. How long did it take to convince the powers that be that this vast complex would be perfect for a museum of contemporary art, A, and B, in a blue-collar rural town? What, what a contrast. It took 11 years to open. So it took a while and it went through, you know, the state of Massachusetts granted $35 million in matching funds to build the museum, not to operate it, but to build it as an economic development project. And that was, you know, now uh, art being seen as a vehicle for economic development and stimulating uh, communities is, is part of the conversation. Then it was a pretty novel idea. And I give Tom Krenz a lot of credit for that. Um, It went through several Republican and several Democratic administrations. And each one, every time a new governor came in, they had to be convinced that this was a decent idea. So Mm -hmm. it, it took a long, long time. And the only reason that it made sense in this blue collar community was the location. You know, if Massapoca had been in Chappaqua, it would be too close to New York. If it had been in Montana, uh, it would be close know. to nothing. Yeah. And, and, you know, the Berkshires are known for culture. And so we knew that, you know, three to 400,000 people were going to Tanglewood every year. People were going to Jacob's Pillow. People were going to the Clark Art Institute. People were hiking Mount Greylock. So there was cultural tourism, but North Adams wasn't getting any part of it because mm-hmm. there was nothing there. And yeah. that was really, that was the argument. I mean, half of its mission, you know, Mass Mocha's mission is to show the best contemporary art and to serve as an economic development project. It was core to the idea. How did the townspeople react to all of this from the get-go? They thought it was crazy. You know, you got to understand that this had been a blue-collar city since the Civil War. Mm. And when Sprague Electric pulled out, you know, every, when I started working there, every single person I met had a parent or a grandparent or a sibling or themselves who had worked in the factory. They liked their community. I mean, you know, Sprague was very patriarchal. They had a company orchestra. They had a company newsletter. They had a company store. They had a company graveyard. Um, and so, wow. Oh my God, that every avenue in somebody's life. That's crazy. Yeah. So they, people liked that and it took them a long time to, they sort of accepted this idea because there was nothing better, but it wasn't as though they embraced it. And um, I felt incredibly fortunate. I, I knew that I knew that I wanted to, to weave the story of Mass Mocha through five characters that represented different parts of the story. You know, one was an artist, but one of them, one of them was a townsperson. And I just struck gold with this woman, Ruth Yarder, because 
She, in 1943, R.C. Sprague, the president of the company, came to Drury High School, which was a public high school of North Adams, and offered girls, girls, a job. Because the men, the guys, the boys had all gone off to war. Off to war, yeah. And she said, you know, in those days, uh, a job interview was high heels, gloves, oh, and a hat. Yeah, right. Yeah. So she left high school in 11th grade and she worked at the plant for 45 years. Holy shit. And then, and then when she retired, she became a volunteer. We saw how some people of North Adams felt about Mass Mocha through her eyes. And she was a great character because she she thought it was crazy. You know, I asked her what she thought of contemporary art, and she said, not much. <laughs> um, but she was also benevolent. And she and she was she was wickedly funny. So <laughs> she she passed away, but she was she's a great character in the film. Um, so did, did, did you come across a majority of townspeople with this, you know, oh, here come all these people with these highfalutin ideas, you know, coming to take over our town. Was that a bit of a hard sell, Ruth notwithstanding? It was. And and the way we did it, the uh, Dukakis lost the presidential bid and right. was no longer governor. And William Weld came in, who was a Republican. And he was not, he was not keen on inheriting a Democratic governor's pet project. So he said, show me that there's local support, raise a million dollar in pledges. And so we went to the cobbler and the grocery store clerk and the gas company and everybody who was really hurting because the town, it's like right now in the pandemic, right? Right. All these, all these companies are hurting so much because nobody's buying things. Yeah, Uh, The economy is not flourishing. And so we asked them to pledge what what their business would be like if there were 100,000 visitors or however many in ah, their town. That's pretty novel. Yeah. And we told them that they didn't have to pay the pledge until the, until the state said that they would, um, that they would provide this $35 million to build it. So they didn't have to make good on their pledge for several years or mm-hmm. seven years. And so that's how we raised a million dollars in pledges. And then we went to Governor Weld and he said, well, that's interesting. We actually raised 1.1, 1. 1, but who's counting? <laughs> um, and then Governor Weld said, well, that's interesting. Now raise some serious money and sent us back to the drawing board to raise 8 million. And that took us a few more years. So it, 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 took, it felt like a putt to the moon sometimes, frankly. Mm. Was that taking up all of your time professionally? Were you doing other things in conjunction with being the co-founder, one of the co-founders? Well, ironically, at one point, Mass Mocha seemed really dead. And I went six months without a salary. And um, so I remember I had, I had been writing cookbooks mm-hmm. and I had started making these hot sauces. And uh, I made this, I, I took a photograph of this hot sauce poster with hundreds of hot sauces on the wall because they were, they were so funny. Like the names of hot sauce, you're like, I am on fire, ready to die. <laughs> um, you know, last rites, which showed a chili pepper in a coffin. I mean, they were, they were hilarious. No other food group is that irreverent. Right. right. So I made this poster and 10 Speed Press, which is now a division of Random House, uh, bought it 
I, I met I met the founder of Tense Breed Press at the Fiery Food Show. There's a national fiery food show in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I pulled up to the front of the convention center and the car in front of me has this, <laughs> this cardboard sign tied to the bumper that says heat-seeking missile. Um, <laughs> and he he ended up selling, I don't know, like a hundred thousand copies. I was on Good Morning America and it was on you know, it was on the set of a very popular TV show in the day. And so I was able to support myself on this hot sauce poster for a year. Isn't that wild? Yes, my head is spinning from all of this. And you know what's, what strikes me? I, I, granted, this wasn't, didn't happen 10 minutes ago, but you're relating this like you're saying, so I went to the supermarket and I bought a dozen eggs and then I had to go to the cleaners <laughs> and pick up my cleaning. I've said this to a lot of the women I um, interview. I apologize if I'm deifying you, but I think that that makes perfect sense that you're going to do what you're going to do and you have and you did. Now, all these firsts for you are big deals, but come on, being a director of a film like this, which really is so expansive, this is not a walk in the park. Yeah, it was probably the hardest thing I've ever done. And, uh, it was also one of the most satisfying, and that probably says too much about me. But <laughs> it, it was not at all. Uh, it was uh, it was really really thrilling, and there were many moments where I thought, "What the hell am I doing? Why did I think I could do this?" Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there are many things I know I can't do, but that because because filmmaking involves storytelling, and because I've been writing stories for you know. 30 years, right. um, it felt like, and, and I must say, I was, I was truly blessed to find great cinematographers. You know, KJ Johnson is one of the best and she was so kind to me and she, she really mentored me and taught me so much. I mean, the night before the first, uh, the first shoot, I was taking this online video course on how to be a director. You know, it was like, oh my God, they're going to know that I know nothing. Oh nothing. man. How long was this whole process? Uh, we, we filmed for 18 months and you know, it's, it wasn't every day, obviously. Right, of course. It wasn't even right. every month. And then it took probably another year, year and a half to do the editing. And I didn't understand this when I started, but I now understand it so well that you know, a film is really made in the editing room. Yes. But there's no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Will you talk about who you decided to put in your film, for lack of a better way of describing it? Particularly, I'm thinking of the artist Nick Cave. And I think that if you explain who he is and what he what his art consists of, that it'll be blow people's minds like it did when I was watching the film. Yeah. I knew that. Um, I had two goals. One was to tell the story of how Mass Mocha came to be. And one was to show what Mass Mocha is today. And so I decided to do that through five characters. And one of them was an artist. And I knew that I wanted to follow an artist who was making uh, an installation in the largest gallery, which is the size of a football field. And it was really just dumb luck because the artist before... Richard Nonis had done this beautiful minimalist installation that, you know, it would not be very interesting to film. And Nick Cave did this very complicated installation. It was called Until. And it's, 
it it implies guilty until proven innocent and it's about it's about gun violence and it's about racism and it was a very it was very a very baroque a huge, complicated installation that took months and months. And um, so I just got really lucky. We we were planning to start filming in January, and I didn't know whether I was going to follow a performing artist or a visual artist. At first, I thought maybe I'd follow both. And then this this show was just starting. So I actually, you know, I capture him on his first day when he walks into this vast football-sized gallery that's totally empty and says, oh my God, because that is the response of so many of the artists who create site-specific work there. They don't realize how how massive, yeah. Yeah, how vast the scale is. And he was difficult because he was very, very private and he didn't like, and he didn't like to talk much. So, but he ended up, you know, over 18 months, he did talk. Yeah, he kind of relaxed and trusted you, I would imagine. Yeah, but again, I was a first-time film director. You know, he was like, oh, my God. Did he know that? Did you share that piece of information with people? Uh, I I did if they asked, but, you know, you can quickly learn that. If they're not familiar with Nick Cave, what he does in this film will just completely and totally blow you away. What were there, 10,000, is that right, pieces to this installation? Of Crystal. Yeah, of crystal. Yeah, of just crystal, and then beads, and you know, it's two stories high. It was, it was a huge feat, and I, I also wanted to show um, one of the characters is a fabricator. You know, the the, the person in the basement wheel, wielding the Carhartt tool belt, belt that when an artist, you know, draws these sketches about what they want to achieve, he helps them achieve it. Make it a reality, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's really fun working in museums. You it, it, Same with book publishing. You know, you're working with ideas and, uh, and inspiration. And I wanted to show that process that you never, ever get to see as a visitor of actually how it comes to be and how, how much blood it takes to do it. Yes, it's, it is so eye-opening. It's just absolutely stunning. Did you work very much hand-in-hand with the director of Mass Mocha? Uh, well, that's a complicated question. <laughs> I was married to the director of Mass Mocha. Oh. <laughs> and he, and okay. so, yeah, yeah, I did. I was hired in 1988, and my my first day of work, I was hired by the director, who was the director of the executive planning group. And a year later to the day that uh, I started working at MassMocha, my husband collapsed at the mushroom factory and had an aneurysm and died of a cerebral hemorrhage three three weeks later. Oh, my God. At age 33. Oh, my God. And all of my friends thought that I would move back to New York after that happened. And I found that I went a month without making any dinners. You know, people left dinners on the back stoop. Mm-hmm. It, was, it, was, it was ultimately a small New England town. And I, and I also knew that um, being a widow with no children, I couldn't go back to writing because it was just too solitary. Right. In many ways, Mass Mocha saved me. And several years later, uh, the director and I 
uh, fell in love and got married. Um, and we were married for 25 years and we have two children together. Mm-hmm. And our marriage ended um, uh, a few years ago. So mm-hmm. I actually didn't want to be in the film myself at all. And you can see that I'm not in it very much because right. it wasn't my story. It was really the story of Mass Mocha. Mm-hmm. But um, but you asked. <laughs> no, no, it's absolutely fascinating. As I'm sitting here, well, the first thing that came to mind as I'm listening to this is, do you have any interest in writing your autobiography? Because God knows no. I'd buy it. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. But no. Oh, my God, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, it certainly would be a work in progress as you are. I'm curious, just as an aside, how did you get Meryl Streep to narrate the film? We've been friendly for many, many years. She's she's been a big fan of Mass Mocha. Her husband has an installation. Yeah, he's been, a, he's a sculptor, isn't he? Yeah, wonderful sculptor, Don Gummer. Right, um, right. She's, she's been to uh, you know my house for dinner, and so I actually I knew she was interested in women filmmakers and supported them. And at that point, you know, I had an all woman team: the editor, the producer, the the cinematographer, and myself. Right. Right. So I actually wrote to her to see if she, because I, I, I raised all the money for the film independently. Mass Mocha had nothing to do with the film um, other than giving us access. Um, and she wrote back and said, well, what if I narrate it? And so that was a, a, that was a huge gift, a huge gift. How much did it cost to make this film? A little under a million dollars, which I thought we were golden. Like I thought a million dollars, you know, that's a lot. And I I quickly learned that that's really nothing for a documentary, but we did it. We did it. And now that it's out there, do you think that that would be the catalyst for you to make more movies? Uh, I am really, really thrilled with the response and uh, really thrilled. And I'm percolating on another idea. It was, as I said, it was super hard, but it was also really fun and and really a joyous experience. And working with creative uh, individuals, you know, my editor, Paula Rappaport, was was a phenomenal person and is now a friend. So, uh, yes, I would like to make another movie. Tell us what else you might have on some of your burners in addition to that. You continue to write, I would assume. My last book was in 2016, and it was called Fresh Fish. And it was ostensibly a fish cookbook, a seafood cookbook. But really, it was a memoir of growing up with sand between your toes along mm-hmm. the coast and what that means. But I have, a, I have a tiger by the tail. I'm director of a museum that is um, it's so funny. Somebody said, well, is your museum as big as Mass Mocha? And it's like, well, the museum I direct now is 20 historic buildings on 750 acres with a collection of 22,000 objects. <laughs> and, and it's fascinating because, you know, the Shakers were... Yeah, I wanted uh, to go there. Mm-hmm. They're, they're remarkable, remarkable. And uh, we are a living history museum, but in the five years that I've been director of the museum... Um, we, four years, four and a half, one of my goals has been to make you see the shakers through a contemporary lens. So to invite people into the experience of the shakers and this historic shaker village, um, in, in whatever pathway you want to come in. So you don't necessarily have to be interested in history. So for example, we invited the artist Maya Lynn to do a site. Mm. 
specific installation where she she took 6,000 glass beads and raked them across the floor, the walls, and the ceiling of the chicken coop um, and created the, the watershed of the Housatonic, which was a, a really important water source for the Shakers. And they built a mill on it and they ground the corn for their neighbors and it became emblematic of their their sort of response to being a member of the community. So, you know, this, this artwork told all those stories. Um, and so that's what I do. That's my day job. So the being director of the Hancock Shaker Village Museum is a labor of love? It is. It is. Mm. And it's, I mean, it's not fun during a pandemic, but in, <laughs> right. gen- in general, it's really fun. It's a, it's a beautiful place. It's another, it's another one of the gems of the Berkshires. I'm going to ask you this question that I often ask my guests, although you don't need to be asked this, but what the hell? If I was your fairy godmother, what would you ask me for? Oh, my goodness. Uh, I don't know. I Mm. really don't know. I, uh, uh, I don't know. I, I guess funding for my next film because I don't want to have to raise the money for it. <laughs> <laughs> and what might that be? I, well, I can't. I, I, you can't share? I well, I don't feel like I should because I think that when you, I think you can pop your bubbles if you, if you show them too quickly, too early. So that is a great segue for me to say, when that happens, will you come back and talk about it? I would be happy to. Yes. Jennifer Trainer, you're, you're, you're amazing. <laughs> and forgive the, forgive the deification. It has been absolutely fascinating. I hope young women know who you are and, and see that you're not going to let anything stand in your way from Mrs. Kennedy having diarrhea to putting together this massive museum and making a film. It's just, it, you're awe-inspiring. Oh, well, thank you. You're very nice. Well, I wouldn't go that far, but um, (laughs) so it's really been my pleasure to meet and get to know you and much more continued joy and success in your life. And again, the invitation stands. We'd be happy to do a part two with you. Great. Thank you so much. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.